you have a Bible, uh, now would be a great time to open it to the passage upon which the teaching is based. It is Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verses 18 through 22. 22 is sort of a swing verse, so we're going to look at half of it and then pick up with it again next week. So that's a little bit of a change than what you have in your bulletin. But don't panic, everything is all right. One of the things about being a minister in 2023 is it used to be so fun to be up here and ask you to open your Bible and you would hear the rustling of the leaves of the Bible. Now it's just a phone or an iPad or something. You need to get an app that would make that sound like the rustling of pages. <laughs> At least it would please me. Somebody do that. Somebody here is smart enough to figure that out. What a glorious uh, privilege we have today to hear the word of the Lord first read and then preached. And so if you would look with me beginning in verse 18, we're going to get a little bit of a dark picture of humanity today. The Bible does not flatter human nature. It does not airbrush it. It does not backlight it. It does not overlook it. It is very candid in its assessment of our brokenness. So hear now the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, this morning as we uh, take the time to go together through this your word, we know that your word is living and powerful and active, that it uh, creates life, that it uh, could be sown in the soil of our heart and uh, spring into something beautiful and glorious. So we pray that the Holy Spirit who breathed out this word and inspired the human authors would attend to the preaching of the word and give us the sense of the passage and how it makes a difference in who we are and how we live. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him and their unwillingness to admit it once they see it. You remember last week we looked at the greatest news ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How God's righteousness is revealed by the action of God setting people right with himself through Jesus Christ. 
But not only is the righteousness of God being revealed today, every day, but the wrath of God is now being revealed every day. Most of us, when we think of the wrath of God, we think of the end of the ages, the consummation of all things, which will be both judgment and restoration. Judgment will fall upon people who have rejected uh, the Christ. And it's a horrible, horrible image to think of. But the reason why people do not welcome the gospel, why do they not get excited about it? Why do, when you share it with people, they go, oh, that's nice for you. You ever had anybody do that? I am so happy for you. And uh, I just want to say, well, you need to read the next verse after that. The wrath of God <laughs> is coming upon those who reject the gospel. It's not be happy for me. But people do not see or perceive or understand or get how much they need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jesus put it, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He was defending against the criticism of the Pharisees in particular who disliked and carped about his fraternizing with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. He did not mean by his epigram about the doctor that some people are healthy, that some people are righteous and do not need salvation, but there are some people who think they are righteous and healthy. In, the, in that condition of self-righteousness, they will never, ever, ever come to Christ. They will not. They don't see the need for it. They look at you as Christianity is a crutch for weak people. By the way, atheism is the other leg broken, and it's a crutch for people who are weak as well. They don't know that yet. By the time we get through with this, I think you'll see that. Or even agnosticism. The same principles apply in our day. Deny the problem. Nothing can be did, done about it. Admit the problem. And once there is the possibility of a solution, it is quite significant that in AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first step of the 12 is we admitted we were powerless over al alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. To be sure, some people insist with great bravado that they are neither sinful nor guilty and that they do not need Christ. Be quite wrong to seek to induce guilty feelings in them artificially. But if sin and guilt are universal, which they are, we cannot leave people alone in their false paradise of supposed innocence. The most irresponsible action uh, of a doctor would be to acquiesce in a patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. It is a plain and unpopular principle which lies behind Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul can show that salvation is applicable and available to both Jews and Gentiles. But it's very important in this text that we see the connection between the wrath of God and the gospel of God. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is going to carefully lay out for us 
what it is when we speak of the wrath of God and how desperately we all need Jesus. Now, some of this sermon uh, came as a result of one of my teachers in seminary named R.C. Sproul. In the year 1979, when I was young and thought I knew everything, now I'm old and know I know nothing, but I read a book by R.C. Sproul entitled, If There Is a God, Then Why Are There Atheists? And it was really a book on the psychology of atheism and the psychology of belief. It was a fascinating book, and I remember the chapter in particular on the text that I'm preaching today, and I remember saying to myself, or even praying as I recall, Lord, if I could ever find this guy and sit under his teaching, how wonderful that would be, because I love the way he writes, I love his theology, I like what he says. I didn't know a Reformed from a Catholic or a, a Baptist or a Methodist. I didn't know any of that. But I just knew this guy, what he was saying in this passage rang so true. And isn't it amazing the Lord answered that prayer so many years later by uh, having him as my systematics professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, and so I learned a lot from him. So some of what I'm going to say resonates with some of what he said because I can't escape it. And he's a pretty good guy to have in your corner. So with that said, the text that we're looking at this morning is foundational in our understanding of God's revelation of the gospel. Notice the abrupt change in tone of the epistle from which we looked at last Sunday. Paul has just introduced the revelation of the righteousness of God, but no sooner has he done that than he begins to talk about another revelation called the wrath of God. And people these days do not want to hear about the wrath of any kind of God at all. Now, I'm sure the apostle introduces the wrath of God at this point because one cannot fully appreciate or enter into or find life from the good news as good except against the backdrop of our culpability and guilt before God. The good news is an announcement to people who are universally under the indictment of God and exposed to his wrath. Jesus mentions in John chapter 3 that the person who does not believe already abides under the wrath of God. The only thing standing between that person and the reality of God's wrath is death. And that's it. The one who is believed, of course, is loved by God. The one who does not believe abides, present tense, under God's wrath. People today are not particularly concerned about the gospel because they know nothing about what God requires. That is the law of God. And they're not at all familiar with the revelation of his wrath. Now, I don't get joy talking out of wrath. I'm not one of those guys that likes to dramatic it up. It breaks my heart to talk about the wrath of God. It makes me cry inside because I know so many people who, unless God mercifully intervenes, are headed for a collision 
with this wrath. If people are sensitive to the manifestation of God's anger toward them, they would be moved at least by enlightened self-interest to flee as fast as they could from the wrath of God and as fast as they could to hear the gospel, but our necks have become so stiff, our hearts have become so hard and calcified that we have no fear of God. People do not believe in God's wrath. They think it is something to do, it's, it's archaic, it's um, anachronistic, it's what people in pagan lands used to believe and so they would offer human sacrifices to appease the wrath of whatever particular God wasn't delivering for them. And so people do not believe in wrath. They think he's incapable of it. They listen to preachers everywhere, tell them every day, all the time, that God loves them unconditionally. And when they hear that, they don't see any reason to even think about, much less fear, the wrath of Almighty God. But before Paul develops the theme of the gospel, he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The Greek word for the word wrath is orge, O-R-G-E, orge, from which we get the word, guess, orgy. Same word, orge, orgy. In Latin, it's ira, from which we get the word irate. And so wrath is orge. We think of participation when we hear the word orgy, when we think of it, as participation in unbridled sexual behavior or eroticism with reckless abandon. The point of contact between the English word orgy and the Greek word for wrath is that Paul uses here is that God is not simply annoyed or irritated. God's anger is one of passion with paroxysms of rage and fury. It's perfectly appropriate for a holy, righteous God to be moved to anger against that which is evil. A judge with no distaste for evil would not be a good judge. And God is angry with two distinct things, ungodliness or irreverence or impiety from the uh, word asibia in the Greek and unrighteousness or wickedness. Uh, a dios, which has to do with righteousness. When we think of those two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, we need to think of ungodliness as a particular religious transgression, such as blasphemy or irreverence or unrighteousness. And when we hear of righteousness, we think of immoral behavior or, or a behavioral pattern. We might look at this text and therefore declare that God is really angry about two things. He is angry about people being irreverent and he's angry about people being immoral. But I don't think that's the force of the text here because Paul uses grammatical structure that we find sporadically throughout the Bible in the epistles called a hendiadis. And a hendiadis, which literally means two for one. Two distinct things taken together to point to just one thing. I think it is proper to understand Paul is saying that God is angry, furious with a particular sin. 
And when we examine this sin, it is seen to be both ungodly or irreverent and unrighteous or immoral. Some think that to say something is ungodly violates the first couple of commandments. Something is immoral, it's violating uh, horizontally the other commandments. But what Paul is saying here is that God's wrath is currently being revealed against people who are doing a very ungodly, irreverent, and immoral thing. What is the immoral and the irreverent thing that people do that are the target of God's wrath? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul tells us. He says this, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are generic terms that cover a multitude of sin, but Paul's not talking about a multitude of sin here. He has in view one particular sin. It is a universal sin, one committed by every single human being who's ever drawn breath. It is the sin that most clearly expresses our Adamic nature, our fallen nature, our corruption, our flesh. And Paul does not leave us to guess what the nature of that particular sin is. God is provoked to an orgy of anger against the sin of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Which leads me to say this. There are no agnostics, there are no atheists, there are just liars who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's see if that holds water. The single sin that provokes God's wrath against the whole human race is the sin of suppressing what? The truth. It is the sin of suppressing the truth. The root Greek word translated suppress is katakine, which can also be translated to hinder, to stifle, to incarcerate, to put into detention, to obscure, or to um, repress. Now, if I was speaking psychologically here, I would say it fits very well into the category that psychologists have written upon eloquently called repression. Years ago, uh, before I finished, right after I finished college and before I went to seminary, I worked in Dallas, Texas as a juvenile probation officer, okay? I worked at juvie, that's what they called it. And one of the things we had to do in the detention center, I didn't work out in the field running after kids, I was rather in the detention center. When police arrest juveniles, they brought them to our center on a chain, a long chain, it'd be a bunch of them. They would release them to us and we had to process them in and assign them to a particular group. These kids had done everything from rape to murder to you name every foul thing you could think anybody would ever do, they did it. And some of them were incredibly stressed out because they were waiting, awaiting their hearing to find out what was going to happen to them as a result of this crime. And so to say that they were a little bit tense and a little bit wrought up was an understatement. 
One of the things that we had to train to do with these, especially the males, and sometimes the females were worse than the males, at least in this regard. We had to restrain them without hurting them. And I basically will tell you what that is. You pin them down, you sit on them till they wear out. Now, I was on the team that had to deal with the kids that went off, went crazy. They'd do it in court. They would do it while being showered in. They would do it, you don't know. But uh, there would be an all alert code red called and we'd all run from where we were to the uh, place where the incident was occurring. And me and a guy named Mr. McCoy, who was six foot seven and weighed 340 pounds and played tackle for UCLA. And then there was another gentleman who played linebacker for Texas Tech. And then there was another guy who played defensive back for SMU. And me. <laughs> I was the runt of the litter. But we would have to get these guys, usually try to get them face down and just lay on them. Now that's what uh, Mr. McCoy, who was 6'7", 340 pounds, was a pro at. He knew how to lay on people to where you could not move and the kid would struggle, 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 struggle until they were exhausted. That's what it means to suppress the truth. It means to repress or suppress the truth to where you don't hear it anymore, you don't see it anymore, it doesn't come up anymore. And so Paul says the thing that draws the wrath of God more than any other thing, is not people being irreverent or impious so much, is not people being unrighteous. He hates that sin as well. But what he hates the most is people who do a very ungodly and unrighteous thing. They suppress the truth. They hold it down. To no longer allow that truth to have any place in their lives. They force it into their subconscious, as it were, to get it out of our mind. Yet despite the strength we use to suppress it, we cannot eradicate it. We cannot get rid of it because it always and everywhere is pushing back up. The specific sin here is the suppression of the truth. And what truth, by the way, is being suppressed? Paul tells us, because what may be known of God is revealed or manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. The truth that every human being suppresses is the truth of God, what God reveals of himself in nature to the whole human race. Nature is not God. God is not one with nature. God is separate and apart. He's the creator. Nature's the creature. We are the creature. God is the creator. God is transcendent. God is somewhat other. But God uses nature itself as a means or a media through which he reveals certain truth about himself. He doesn't reveal everything about himself. He doesn't reveal mercy and grace about himself. But he does reveal attributes about who he is through the media of creation. That's generally called natural or general revelation. And God does that. 
all the world is singing and praising of the glory of God. The truth that every human being suppresses the truth of God, what God reveals himself in nature to the whole human race, this is not the truth that we learn about God through the Bible, but we suppress that too, by the way. But here, Paul is writing of a truth that is known about God from the Bible, a knowledge of God that God has made real or revealed or manifest. The Greek word phoneros, which means to show plainly, comes to be used in our language as phenomenon, which is derived from that Greek word. The knowledge of God that God gives of himself is not obscure, it's not buried with hidden clues, only an intellectual or elite group of people are able to discover after a long and painful and tedious search of sifting through evidence, the truth that God gives of himself is manifest, it is clear, it is plain, so everybody gets it. You know in your gut you're, that there's a God. Calvin often spoke of something called the sensus diviniatus. And he meant that there's a sense of deity by virtue of us being made in the image of God, stamped, as it were, with his image, made for God, made for a relationship with him. There is in the soul of every person that deep imprint that there is a God, a real God. And people know that, but they suppress it. They suppress it. And that's a very dangerous thing to do, as we will see. It is uh, clear because God himself is the one who makes it clear. And we cannot say the student did not learn because the teacher did not teach. That would impugn the ability and integrity of Almighty God. He shows it to everybody. The Greek, again, uh, means... Agnosis means without knowledge. The agnostic portrays himself as a nicer, gentler, less uh, culpable form of atheism. The atheist boldly declares that there is no God, but the agnostic says, well, I don't know if there's a God. I'm agnostic. I am out with sufficient, I, I am without sufficient knowledge to make a firm judgment on that matter. Doesn't that sound so... Uh, elevating, sort of. Like, I'm not a bad guy. I just don't know. And I don't have sufficient knowledge to make a firm judgment on the matter. By the way, the Latin term for agnosis, agnostic, is ignoramus. Agnostics think that they are not as militant as atheists, but they do not realize that their agnosticism exposes them to greater risk for the wrath of Almighty God than if they were militant atheists. Not only do they refuse to acknowledge the God who also reveals himself plainly, but they blame God for their situation, saying, He has not given me sufficient information. Sounds like Adam in the garden, right? The woman you gave me. And of course, Eve said what? The serpent deceived me. Uh, 
R.C. Sproul shares this story, and I'll, I'll share what he says. He says, I was invited to a campus at a university years ago to speak to an atheist club. They asked me to present the intellectual case for the existence of God. I did. And as I went through the arguments for the existence of God, I kept things on a very intellectual plane. All things were safe and comfortable until I got to the end of my lecture. At that point, I said, I'm giving you an argument for the existence of God. But I feel like I'm carrying coals to Newcastle because I have to tell you that I do not have to prove to you that God exists because you already know it. I don't have to prove it because you already know it. Your problem is not that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you despise the God whom you know exists. Your problem is not intellectual. It is moral. You hate God. By the way, we're all born with an antipathy toward God because of our sinfulness. And so when we think about this, let's go further, a little bit further in the text. He says this, God says that he has plainly and clearly shown himself to everyone for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. They are conspicuous. God has made his self-revelation conspicuous to everyone since the creation of the world. God does not pop a clue in history about his existence every 3,000 years or so. Every moment since the dawn of creation, God has been doing what? God has been making himself manifest through the things that are made. God did not give us a world and just say, sit down, begin to think and figure it out. Figure out where it came from, what is the reason for it being, and figure back to God. Every second God is manifesting himself through things that are made so that his testimony to his nature is plainly evident. You know the question, what happens to the poor, innocent native in Africa or any other place where the gospel hasn't gone who've never heard of Jesus? What have you got to say about that? Well, the poor, innocent native in Africa, some people would say, goes straight to heaven when he dies because he's, he's, uh, he has no guilt. He has no need for, uh, for a savior. Jesus did not come in the world to save innocent people. There are no innocent people. There are no innocent natives in Africa, Australia, South America, Europe, Asia, or anywhere else. People think that those who have not heard of Jesus are surely innocent, but Jesus came into a world under the indictment of God the Father because it has rejected him. We must disavow ourselves the idea that they're innocent people anywhere. Nobody's innocent. Nobody deserves anything special. People also ask, will God send people to hell for rejecting Jesus of whom they have never heard? God is not going to punish someone for rejecting somebody he's never heard of, but their destination is hell for the rejection of the one they have heard of. They suppress it, they suppress it, they suppress it. 
And the only possible way someone can be rescued from wrath is through the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is setting the foundation for the urgency of the gospel. Immanuel Kant, a very great philosopher of the 18th century, perhaps the greatest agnostic of all time, revolutionized, as it were, the world of philosophy by giving a systematic, comprehensive critique of the traditional classic arguments for the existence of God. Kant argued that you cannot reason from visible things of the world back to the invisible God. According to Kant, God is in a realm not known through theoretical reason or empirical investigation. If Kant was right, then the Apostle Paul was wrong. If Paul was right, then Kant was wrong. That's what it gets down to. It is time that the Christian church stopped rolling over and playing dead at the feet of Immanuel Kant and started showing the error of Kant's reasoning. In Romans, Paul sets forth plainly that the invisible God, even though he cannot be seen because he is invisible, is clearly seen. God is not seen directly, but he is seen through the things he has made. God reveals his eternal power and Godhead to the whole world. And the revelation does not give us all specific details about the character and nature of God. You want to know that? You'll have to come Wednesday night to the officer's class. But it is certainly gives us a knowledge of God in general. This revelation includes God's eternal power, God's self-existence, God's eternal being has revealed in every leaf, every page, every raindrop, every inch of the cosmos since the beginning of time. God's eternal power and his inherent attributes, immutability, omniscience, omnipresence, and all that fits with being deity are made clear through nature. God is also revealed by his moral perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, his sovereign right to impose obligations upon his creature without their permission or assent. God inherently has the right to command from the creatures what is pleasing to him. Paul says all these things are made clear to us. Which leaves us where? without excuse. Paul explains the rationale for the revelation of God's wrath. They are without excuse. Man has no basis for an apologia to God's indictment. What answer will a corrupt, fallen human beings try to give God on the day of judgment? They may say things like, God, I didn't know you. I didn't even know you were there. If you had made your revelation clear to me, I would have been your obedient servant. People will be tempted to say, uh, make a plea or an excuse. But everyone stands, Paul says here, without excuse. Do you believe the word of God or not? Paul says no one anywhere has an excuse that will exempt them from the judgment of God by the revelation God has already given through nature. Now, by the way, I didn't say this, but I imagine every Jew in the audience that was listening to what Paul was saying was amening and high-fiving each other. Get after them pagans, Paul. <laughs> 
He's going to get to them in the next couple of chapters, and it's just as bad or worse. But here, he's dealing with Gentiles or pagans. And so, there is no excuse of ignorance before God. Not when he has given us that information. A plea of ignorance is an empty plea that will never have any effect. Although, he says, they knew God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. That's amazing. In other words, not only has God given a revelation of himself through the creation and his attributes, but he has also, in that uh, process, revealed the obligation we have because God has revealed himself. And the first one of those, he says, is to glorify him. What does it mean to glorify God? Now, that's a nice religious phrase that people in our tradition like to knew, uh, do or talk about, say. But really, what it really means is it's the opposite of repressing him. It's the opposite of suppressing the truth. To glorify God is to make God large and yourself small. To glorify God means to live for him and his pleasure, not for you and yours. It means to make much of God, not much of yourself. And people have enough information to live for God's glory. What is the chief end of man, our catechism says? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God made us for himself. God made us for a relationship with him. He made us for his glory. He made us to participate in his glory. And he reveals himself. And we were, are without excuse if we ignore that. If God gets on the circumference of our life and he's not central to our life, then we're not glorifying him. We're at the center. And we're suppressing the truth, keeping God on the margins. In case someday, in a foxhole, we might need him. But not only not glorifying, but not giving him thanks. When Paul tells us over and over again the fundamental sin in our fallen corrupt nature is the sin of idolatry in that it's the sin of refusing to honor God as he is. We want to strip him of his attributes. We want to turn him into a God of our image, a God we can live with, a God that we can be comfortable with, a great big granddaddy in the sky. People say God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. But that's not the God of Scripture. The God of love is revealed in Scripture, but he's also the God who is angry with sin. He's the God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. We cannot embrace the attributes of God that make us comfortable and reject the ones that don't. When we do that, we join the throng of humanity that suppresses the truth of God and refuses to honor him as God or be thankful and grateful to him. Most people are either bitter or cynical. <laughs> when you cut down through all the layers, I'm talking about adults, some kids do. 
They're either bitter because God gave me a raw deal. He did not give me the life I deserved. Other people have privilege over me. Other people have uh, things that I will never have. Other people live with comforts that I'll never know. Why is God like that? Why is he selling me short? Why doesn't he provide for me everything my heart desires? When I look at other people and compare myself with other people, I can't help but be enraged by that. And other people are cynical. That's the people who've been bitter too long and just say, I don't care. I don't care. I don't know, and I don't care. (laughs) Apathy and indifference (laughs) or ignorance. And so, the sad thing about all of this is it infects the hearts of people we're around every single day. The refusal to honor and worship God with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude for what he has given is what defines our fallenness. Every Sunday morning I get up in my neighborhood and I have one neighbor who goes to church that I'm aware of. I mean there may be more but he's the only one I ever see stirring in the morning. And I see him get in his car and his driver, he always waves at me. He knows I'm a preacher. He's one of the few neighbors that waves at me. The rest of them are scared to death I'm going to say something to him or go talk to him. <laughs> feel like just putting on my f- garage door. Preacher lives here. <laughs> Leave me alone, right? But no, never saw anybody go. Why? Why is it? I'm not better than them. I'm not really much different than them. People are everywhere but at church because nothing is more displeasing to them than to worship God. People hate coming to a worship service. They'll do it a couple of times a year, maybe, but they don't want to hear about God. They're trying to suppress that knowledge anyway. It's pushed down, and they have no desire to hear God or have God in their minds and hearts. Their hearts are darkened. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Some of the most brilliant people come to very different conclusions about the nature of reality. For example, Thomas Aquinas or Aurelius Augustine, they were fiercely convinced of the reality of God and their lives were driven by that conviction which lay at the foundation of everything else they believed. Other gifted intellectuals, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean Stuart Mill, and Hébert Camus, wound up on the other end of the spectrum, embracing nihilism, a la Nietzsche, saying that there is no meaning or significance in human experience. How can such brilliant people end up so far away from one another? If at the beginning of the pursuit of knowledge people categorically deny what they know to be true, the reality of God, then frankly the farther away they will go from that God. They have built their house on a lie, on sand, and their thinking becomes an exercise in futility, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Always loved that song by Hank Williams. See, I told you I was a little bit of a redneck, but I like that song, I Saw the Light. That's the beginning of the work of God in the soul 
is to see the light. Paul here speaks of hearts that are dark. He uses the word foolish. To the Jew, the judgment of foolish is not an intellectual judgment, but rather a moral judgment. That is why Jesus warned us against calling people fools. Don't say the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. The fool is only being stupid. He is also being wicked because he's denying what he knows to be true. The indictment over all people is they refuse to honor God as God. It's not that they fail to know God and therefore do not honor and think him. They do know God and will not honor him and be grateful. There is massive perdition, or that is the massive perdition in which we find ourselves. Fallen human beings and against the background, the gospel comes to us. The fool here, hearts, their foolish hearts, were darkened in professing to be wise, they become fools. Don't you know, hadn't you ever been around intellectuals that snidely and smugly dismiss us as believers in Christ? How primitive. The blood of Christ, how primitive. How uh, escape-oriented can you be? That's just a crutch for very weak people. They mock us and they make fun of us. But if you know that God is the author of all things, then you know that the affirmation of the existence of God is the purest science, scientific thought that you can ever have. To deny or exclude is not to be scientific, it's to be foolish. It is ironic that those who refuse to acknowledge what they know to be true claim such activity in the name of wisdom. They call it science, which is actually foolishness, foolishness that betrays a heart of darkness. They do not become atheists generally. They become idolaters. They become religious, as we will see next Sunday. So what do I say in summary? The wrath of God, that is his settled, determined heart to punish and judge evil. God would not, it would be inconsistent to even speak of a God of love who did not hate evil and want to deal with evil. That attribute of God, his wrath, is in 2023 being revealed in our culture every day. Now next week you're going to see how that suppression leaks its way out and shows itself in the way we live. We're going to see how people exchange the knowledge of God and as a result of that exchange, it's not a sweet exchange, it's a horrible exchange. And God will turn them over to what their hearts want. He gives them what they want. And it's awful. You're going to see that it's a very destructive life. It's self-destruction to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But Paul says people are doing something that is ungodly beyond ungodliness and wicked beyond wickedness. They know there is a God and they suppress it and live arrogantly 
before his face is if he is not there when they know in their heart of hearts he is. That's why they get so angry when you bring it up. Well, the Bible tells us to flee from the wrath to come. What does that mean? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Receive him, rest in him, because he has delivered us from the wrath to come. There are people in this room right now who will never experience not one iota of the wrath of God because Jesus hung on the cross and took it in our place for the life we lived while we suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That is our only hope. It's the only place we got to go. And then we'll begin to live a life for God's glory, filled with gratitude, as Dan mentioned, about being delivered out of Egypt and brought into Sinai to head into the Promised Land as a motivation of gratitude, wanting to obey him, that's how it changes. But the gospel will never be good news to anybody in this room until you understand wrath and the judgment from which you have been or will be delivered. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this text. It's hard. It's direct. It's truth. And it cuts against the grain of everything and everyone that surrounds us. Nobody believes this uh, outside of those who love God's word and believe God's word. And Father, I pray that we would have compassion for our neighbors. For but for your grace, we would be fools in darkness too. We would be every day suppressing and trying to hold down the truth of who you are and what you long for us to do. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue to worship you, we'll do so with gratitude from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet for your matchless grace. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.